Before June reads the gospel passage, I want to set it into context for you. Um, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the streets of Jerusalem when he sees a beggar who he learns has been born blind. You probably know this story. Jesus makes mud with his saliva, smears it on the man's eye, and then sends him to a nearby pool to wash. And when the man washes, he receives his sight. He can see for the first time in his life. Now, you might expect his neighbors and his friends to rejoice at this miracle, but instead they argue about whether this man actually is the beggar that they once knew. Maybe it's not him after all. I don't know. And when he protests that he is the man, they ask who healed him, but since he didn't she, Jesus, all he can tell them is that a man named Jesus, who was called Jesus, put mud on his eyes and told him to wash, and then he had sight. But Jesus has moved on, and the neighbors do not believe him. And so they take him to the Pharisees, the local spiritual leaders. The Pharisees are rather appalled by this man's healing, which also seems odd. Again, you would think they would be rejoicing, but this healing happened on the Sabbath, which broke all the rules, so they were unhappy about that. And so they interrogated the man and even his parents, who were so afraid of the authorities that they barely acknowledged their son. Frustrated by their refusal to believe in what he is telling them and to understand that Jesus' healing work is from God, the man dares to challenge them. And they angrily, the Pharisees angrily reject his arguments and drive him out of the synagogue. He is expelled. He is excommunicated. He is on the outs. Now comes a rather touching twist. Hearing that the man has been expelled, Jesus seeks him out. For the first time, the man sees his Savior. For the first time, he sees Jesus, and his growing faith blossoms into worship. Now he not only sees Jesus with his eyes, but with his heart. And he is welcomed into the community of the disciples. Some of the Pharisees overhear this exchange between Jesus and the man, Nevertheless, they remain blind to the truth of Jesus, even though the evidence of his power stands right in front of them. In today's scripture passage, Jesus continues to talk to both his disciples and the Pharisees. Let's listen as June reads. The scripture is in John, verse 10, and it's 1 through 10. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate, the shepherd of the sheep, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, 
but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you're feeling a little confused right now, you're not alone. Not only have we left behind the metaphors of sight and blindness, but now we are confronted with a plethora of metaphors having to do with, of all things, sheep. Jesus starts out talking about a sheepfold, a walled enclosure in which the sheep are penned for the night. Their safety is threatened by thieves and bandits who try to climb inside, presumably to steal a sheep or two. A gatekeeper opens the gate of the sheepfold for the shepherd, who knows his sheep by name and whose voice is so familiar to his flock that they willingly follow him. Now, if you're like me, you immediately assume that the Pharisees are the thieves and bandits whose strange noises, or voices, maybe noises, frighten the sheep. Given their treatment of the newly sighted man, that assumption would seem to be correct. As spiritual leaders, the Pharisees are supposed to shepherd their people, to care for them and protect them, and instead they treated one of their flock with contempt driving him out of the sheepfold of their community to fend for himself. You probably also assume that the trustworthy shepherd is Jesus himself, which is why it is such a surprise when Jesus declares a few verses later, I am the gate for the sheep. Not the shepherd, not the gatekeeper, but the gate. Now, in the verses that follow this passage, Jesus does say, I am the good shepherd. But we're going to stay with this. We're going to stay here where he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and out and find pasture. At night, the gate of a sheepfold keeps the sheep penned in so they are safe and the bandits and thieves are blocked out. But during the day, the gate is left open so that the sheep can leave following their shepherd to pastures where they will feed. At night, the gate provides protection from danger. During the day, it provides access to nourishment. Because of the gate, the sheep can indeed safely go in and out and find pasture. I think that's a beautiful image of the gate, but there is one danger to it, and theologian Elizabeth Johnson offers this thought. She writes, It is important to note that the metaphor of the gate is not one of exclusion, not a license to think of ourselves as Jesus' true sheep in that sheepfold and others as outsiders. If we use it that way, we become like the Pharisees who expelled the blind man from their community. The purpose of the gate is not to keep out other sheep. And Jesus, indeed, Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Rather, the purpose of the gate is to guard against all that threatens the well-being of the sheep, thieves, bandits, and maybe even wolves. 
In his commentary on this passage, Christopher Burkett recalls learning the rules of Gates during his early childhood, his out in rural and country. Rules such as always closing and fastening a gate when you find it closed so that animals will not get out. Has anybody here ever grown up with rules like that? Yeah, you've got to be sure to close that gate, and if the gate's open, you've got to leave it open because the animals may need to go in and out to find access to water. You have to pay attention to what's going on with that gate. But there don't seem to be any rules like that here. Indeed, the image of the gate appears to act as a metaphor for God's salvation and grace. We usually think of salvation as being saved from something. In particular, being saved from our sin, receiving forgiveness, and being saved from the fear of death. But there are other things from which one might be saved. The man born blind, for example, was saved from a life of darkness and dependency. A leper whom Jesus healed would have been saved from illness and alienation. Sheep in a sheepfold are being saved from injury and death. But salvation has another side, one that Jesus seems to emphasize here. Listen again to the last verse of this passage. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In other words, Jesus came not only to save us from something, but to save us for something, which he names here, abundant life. The concept of life is central to John's gospel. In the first chapter we read, in him, that is Christ, was life, and the life was the light of the world. And near the end of the gospel, the author declares that the book was written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Jesus himself declares, I am the resurrection and the life. And life in Christ is not just mere existence. It has meaning. It has purpose. Likewise, it is not a promise that will only be fulfilled in eternity. It is a reality in the present, here and now. Oh, and it is life abundant. The metaphors of shepherd and sheepfold point to a life lived in safety and security, a life in which which one's needs for food and water and shelter are met. Those same metaphors also point to a life in community, in the warm companionship of the flock, and most importantly, in a relationship of deep and abiding trust with the shepherd, a shepherd who knows each sheep's name. The 23rd Psalm offers a beautiful picture of that shepherd, a shepherd who not only leads his flock to lush grass and clean water, but also walks with them through dark and dangerous valleys, a shepherd who prepares a feast in the midst of enemies and offers an overflowing cup of goodness and mercy, peace, and joy. Think of that as you remember those words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How comforting it is to read that psalm. But I don't think 
that's exactly what we usually think of when we hear the word abundance. I think most of the time we associate that word with other things, things such as wealth and possessions. Don and I were at a pre-retirement workshop that's offered to clergy. That's down the road, but getting ready this past week. And we had a wonderful man. We talked a lot about Social Security and Medicare and health benefits and pensions and so forth. But we had a wonderful man named Keith Lawrence who came to talk to us about other things. And he agreed that finances were important, but he also encouraged us to think about having what I could call an abundant retirement, thinking about what we're going to do and how we're going to be and how it could be wonderful. I think of that when I think here. I think that Jesus' promise of abundance encourages us to think not only about the things that God provides for us, but about our own lifestyle, our purchases, our achievements, our interactions with others, and to ask ourselves if those things for which we have worked and striven have given us satisfaction and happiness, if they have filled our cup to overflowing. Because here's the thing. We can do a lot of planning for our lives, for the lives we live now, for our retirement, but the abundant life that Jesus promises is not something that we can earn. It is a gift. David Lose writes, in contrast to all that would rob us of life, the thieves and bandits that he mentions, Jesus comes to give not just life, but life in abundance. Not just survival, that is, but flourishing. Not just getting by, but thriving. Not just existence, but joy. Jesus offers, in sum, more life than most of us can imagine possible. David also points out that the gift of abundance may look different for different people. For sheep, abundance is having a lot of grass and water and protection. For the man born blind, the abundance was the colors and shapes, the wonder of sight. For a teenager, it might be acceptance and encouragement. For families who stay at our church during Family Promise Weeks, it is a home, and more than that, it is someone who cares enough to help. For a child, abundance might be the unconditional love of their parents. Can be many things for many people and yet even though abundance is expressed in different ways david writes it always manifests itself as a response to whatever seeks to rob the children of god of their inheritance of life purpose and joy david also suggests and i concur that abundant life is life lived beyond our own wants and needs Jesus is indeed the gate to that life, but I believe that he also invites us to live into that promise by acting as gates ourselves. Not as gates that close in and shut out, but as gates of welcome and acceptance, gates of help and hope and love that open up the possibilities of healing and wholeness and peace for those whom we encounter. Abundant life. 
Ken Callahan, whose seminar I attended a couple of weeks ago, offered this metaphor for heaven that I think speaks to this passage. When you come to heaven, he says, it will be an open field and there will be lots of people to welcome you. There are no gates in heaven. I love that image because so often we think of heaven as something that's barred that you have to pass an exam to get into. I love the idea of it being an open field where we can, for lack of a better way to put it, run and jump and live in joy and grace and love. Jesus is the gate that leads to that open field, not only in eternity, but here and now. Not a gate that shuts out, but a gate that opens and welcomes us in and out where we may find pasture. May we walk through that gate with confidence and faith and joy. Amen.